Are you in college? The Thomistic Institute Study Abroad Program is now accepting applications for the spring semester of 2024. This unique and exciting study abroad program offers you the opportunity to spend a semester in Rome at the Dominican Order's Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas. You'll study the ancient and medieval intellectual tradition of Rome, live with like-minded young men and women steps from the Colosseum, and participate in weekly cultural and intellectual events, regular day trips, and multi-day excursions. To learn more about this life-changing opportunity, go to ThomisticInstitute.org slash Rome. That's ThomisticInstitute.org slash Rome. Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. We left off having finished question two, basically. So that leaves us in question three and three, four, and five remaining. So I think I'm going to admit defeat in terms of like going um, carefully through the texts. And so I'm going to step back a little bit from the texts and speak more generally about the principles for, I think, understanding what Aquinas is talking about. So this is not exactly how I prepared this lecture, um, but uh, we'll, I'll try to dip into the text, but maybe um, a little less carefully um, than I had hoped. So we saw in question one, Aquinas talking about the last end. Now we've seen in question two, he's talking about what does happiness consist in? And we've discovered that pleasure is actually a really important part of the answer. Getting one's um, pleasures rightly ordered is actually key to moral maturity. And just to amplify a point that comes out in Aristotle, uh, but that I think, practically speaking, for someone trying to live a, uh, a life of happiness or a life of virtue, which Aquinas would say are the same thing. Um, it's good to just repeat one of the things that I said rather briefly, that the pleasures that you seek in a way are the measure of your moral maturity. And what does that mean? Um, pleasures are different. There's an analogical hierarchy of pleasures associated with the hierarchy of goods. So human beings are animals, rational animals. We can seek after animal goods, and you will remain on the level of your animal nature. It's not to say that animal goods are not goods. They are goods. And it's okay sometimes to take a relative pleasure in them, to appreciate the pleasures that come from Taking a hot bath or a nice summer day, there's nothing wrong with that. Getting a good night's rest, um, that might be important for other reasons. But that isn't the highest sort of pleasure to seek. So when you seek higher pleasures, you begin to develop a taste for them, then you are exhibiting more uh, moral um, maturity, really, and moral growth. So that's actually not a bad test to ask yourself. You know, when you're young, you probably pursue some pleasures that are um, not as refined. And as you get older, your taste in what really matters uh, matures. Aquinas has a very interesting thing to say about this 
which comes up in his commentary on the Gospel of John, which um, let me uh, insert here, because I think it's actually very illuminating for what he's getting at in the big picture in questions one to five of the Prima Secundae. So as I was saying, question one to five, at least arguably, is a kind of prologue summing up the whole of the moral life that's going to have to be unpacked over the rest of the Secunda Pars. So the rest of this massive, the majority of the Summa is taken up in this middle section, the Secunda Pars, the Prima Secundae and the Secunda Secundae, dealing with the moral life, which Aquinas thinks is about happiness. So I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. But first, something about the kinds of of delights and desires that we can have. And Aquinas in the commentary on John says, you know, spiritual desires work differently than bodily desires. Because bodily desires are for what we lack. You desire what you don't have. And when you get it, your desire ceases. So, when you don't have food, you're hungry, and you desire to eat. When you've eaten enough food, you cease to be hungry. And what's kind of curious is that what was extremely desirable before ceases to be desirable, and at a certain point actually becomes repulsive to you. You eat enough, you will start to get sick. That also is true about desires that, you know, like a desire for an iPhone, for example. You want the latest iPhone model. Um, what's the latest model? 14, okay. You have the 13. You're thinking about the 14. You've got to get the 14. And you think, if I only had the 14, my life would work out. You know, like how much better I'd be, how much better off I'd be if I just had the 14. Um, but after you get the 14 and you've had it for a week or two, you realize, yeah, this hasn't really solved all my problems. Um, and that constantly happens to us, especially when we're not sufficiently reflective or maybe not fully morally mature. So bodily desires are for what we don't have, and when we get it, we lose the desire for it. Spiritual desires, Aquinas says, work in the opposite way. What you don't have, you don't desire. And as you begin to have it, your desire for it increases. So in the order of spiritual life, if you don't know that you can have friendship with God or that you can have a kind of enduring peace, an interior peace that comes from your life being somehow reconciled to God, if you don't know that you can be forgiven of your sins, if you don't know that it's possible to live a life of more or less serene virtue, you don't try for those things, and you don't even desire them. It's only when you begin to taste them that the desire is awakened in you, and that desire, the more, you, the more of it you have, the more of it you desire. Now, by desire here, I don't mean um, just a concupiscible desire. I don't think Aquinas means just a concupiscible desire, by which I mean something that you're seizing in order to satisfy a lack, but it is moving you in the order of love so that the more you 
know, the more you love. Knowing doesn't diminish your love of what you know. And so it's like a, a virtuous amplification of that, of that desire. Until you reach the point when you possess perfectly, at which point you don't cease to love, although you don't any longer uh, have like a lack, you possess and therefore love most fully. I think that's what Aquinas is depicting by the time you get to the end of question five. So there is this dynamic of us as bodily creatures. I mean, we're, we're sort of odd creatures. Let's go back to the Imago Dei, right? We're made in the image and likeness of God, but we have bodies. And that means we progress through time in our moral maturity. One of the um, articles, maybe this would be worth looking at since it, you know, we are treating our subject now. Um, one of our articles that we read in this latter part, I think it's in question five. Let me just, uh, yes, question five, article seven. Allow me to make, make the point that I'm, I'm trying to make because it's about the place of human beings in the order of God's creation. Whether any good works are necessary that man may receive happiness from God. And the title, I think, is maybe a little misleading because the center of the argument is really about do we need to go through like a progression in order to get to happiness? So the first objection says it would seem that no works of man are necessary that he may obtain happiness from God because God is an agent of infinite power. And so um, he requires or he needs before he acts neither matter nor disposition of matter, but he can produce the whole effect right away. So he doesn't need us to do anything in order to be made happy. He could just create us instantly happy. And that's actually a good question. Like, why didn't he do that? If God's goal was to, was to produce creatures who would share his happiness, then why has he made it so complicated? So this is a, actually a very good and deep question. And Aquinas' answer in, his, in his, uh, the body of his uh, reply draws a distinction between the way God is happy and the way angels are happy and then the way human beings are happy. So the first thing that he says about God is God is happy by his very essence because he's goodness itself. So there's no way that God can like go from potency to act in being happy. God is just blessed by nature. All all of it is there all the time. So there's no movement towards happiness in God, nor could there be. But, he says, this belongs to God alone. And that's if you understand what God is, or who God is, he who is. Okay, so what about creatures then? Could God create a creature that would be instantly happy with, like, the only one movement, like the first instant of movement? And Aquinas' answer is, Yes, that's exactly what he did with the angels. So at least the angels who did not fall, like they're created, 
they, in the first instant of their existence, and now when we're talking about time and angels, you know, uh, we have to be, we have to put brackets around that because time is a measure of um, motion and angelic motion calls into question our normal sense of time, which is related to physical motion. But we can talk about there being a kind of succession of instants uh, or moments. So in the first moment, the angel makes uh, an act of will and is thereafter happy, assuming that under grace, the angel loves God. So it's possible for God to create a whole universe of beings who don't go through a progression of works over a long duration of time. But God willed to create a multiplicity of creatures, and in another part of the Summa, Aquinas talks about that. This is a part of the, the splendor of creation, that God didn't just make everything the same. In a certain way, you could have just had God, and then it would be great, right? It would be totally sufficient. You don't need more than that. Uh, I mean, I could add a little footnote here. Beautiful point, not really our subject. Um, but I'll throw it out just as one of those things that I love to come back to. And, you know, the mind kind of marvels at its truth. God does not need the world. He does not love the world because of anything in the world. God has created the world because he is good and he shares his goodness with the world. So there's nothing in the world that calls forth God's creative act. God's love of himself is why he creates to share himself which he did not need to do and which does not make him at all better off so in a sense god plus the world is not greater than god in one in one way of thinking so that okay that's kind of boggles the mind it's hard to think about, but it's helpful to see. Uh, okay, so God by himself, that would be enough. God has chosen to create angels, and he wanted to create a type of creature that would be, in the first moment, perfected. But then he has chosen also to create lower creatures who are still capable of coming to perfection. And that's us. We're the creatures with bodies and souls. So unlike animals who aren't capable of knowing and loving God in a spiritual way, we are animals that are capable of that. And being at the place in the hierarchy of being that we're at, we go through lots of changes in time to develop. We take a long time for our moral development. For most of us, it's probably going to be 80 some years of moral development. Um, and at the end of that, I hope we come to a sufficient state of moral maturity by the time we die. And Aquinas thinks that's really where you're at. Like you die, you have become what you are becoming. So in this question, he's asking, why didn't God just make us go instantly to happiness? And his answer is, well, he can do that. And he does do that for some. Uh, but he wanted to create the kind of creature who does that, like we're lower. We just have to see our place. 
And he wants us to do that through a series of meritorious actions. So our actions actually then become really important. Now, very important caveat to add here. When Aquinas says meritorious actions, he is not making a claim that, um, for example, would I think when properly understood, the, the Protestant reformers would be really upset at about being justified by works. The point of this is that grace is the root of every meritorious action. Aquinas is crystal clear about that and says it in many places. So that you are able to do a good act, like, for example, making the act of faith, which he counts as the first and most important good act that you do, that making an act of faith is only possible because God has elevated and moved you to make that act. But it's your act. And he takes delight in rewarding that act with eternal life. So he is creating the conditions by which we can do something that, in a sense, does deserve the reward that he's giving us. And that, in a sense, is very important there because we don't strictly deserve it. But it's like the generous father with the little kid who says, you know, Johnny, I will buy you a bicycle if you clean your room. Cleaning the room isn't enough to earn the money to buy the bicycle. But why does the, why does the parent make that kind of deal? Because it's actually ennobling for the child to do something to get the bicycle. And it's morally good for the child to do that rather than simply being given the bicycle and then um, maybe not recognizing its value. So that's, that's a, maybe gets us into some interesting questions about grace and merit, which isn't, you know, which is Aquinas alludes to here. Okay. I'd like to step back, you know, step back and take a look at the big picture again. Okay. So We've been talking about um, the last end, in what does happiness consist. In question three, we see that it's, in the end, it's, um, it's God who is the last end. It's, the, it's the, not, a, not a, an external good, not a bodily good. It's kind of a good of soul, insofar as it's an operation, you know, knowing God. But ultimately, we're talking about God himself is who we're loving. So. Um, Question three, article one, picks up this distinction which we mentioned in the last talk about beatitude as think, thinking of beatitude as the thing itself in which happiness consists, which here he points out is God, uncreated, infinite, and therefore perfectly satisfying every desire. And then the use of the thing. And there, it's the action of the soul, knowing and loving God perfectly. And that, of course, is, as an, as an action of a creature, is created and finite. So in one sense, beatitude is uncreated and infinite. In another sense, it is created and finite, the happiness of a creature. And that would be true of any creature. Angels, too, of course, are going to have a finite act of beholding God, 
and loving God. In question three, article two, Aquinas takes this a little further and says, insofar as happiness is something created, it must be an operation because it's, it needs to be actual, not just potential. So it's not just that you could be knowing God later or that you're, you know, you've got him in the back of your mind, uh, but you're not really thinking about it right now. It's actually knowing him and thus loving him. Um, the reply to uh, objection four in article two, again, takes us back to the difference between how God is happy, how angels are happy, and how human beings are happy. And it distinguishes between imperfect happiness and perfect happiness, which is also a, a helpful distinction. Imperfect happiness simply means happiness of someone who is still on the way, where fulfillment of desire remains in the future. So it's not to say that it's not happiness at all. It's just to say that it's happiness that has not yet reached its final perfection. Whereas the beatific vision, this is the happiness, the only happiness, that will be fully actual and therefore fully perfect. Uh, but this is, you know, something even talking with our friends useful to, to bring out in conversations about happiness. You can ask someone, um, are you happy at, you know, are you happy in your graduate program? And so when I say, yeah, yeah, you know, I am. Um, could it possibly be better? And they will almost always say, yeah, you know, it could be better in this way. Are you, are you happy in your job? Are you happy in your marriage? Uh, you know, hopefully people answer, yeah, for the most part, I am. But we recognize that there's always something more that could be desired. And that's always going to characterize every imperfect happiness. So it's not to say that that happiness is fictional or not real. Imperfect happiness might be very robustly real happiness. It's just to say that it remains in via, on the way to the final happiness. There are some other interesting remarks in um, question three. I'm just going to throw out a few things. Um, Happiness is not essentially in the senses, although the senses can go before or follow after perfect happiness. We talked about that a little bit already. Article four, this is a, a point of real disagreement, I think, between Thomists and some other schools of thought, I suspect. Created happiness does not consist in an act of will, Aquinas thinks, but rather an act of intellect. For Aquinas, intellect uh, has a certain priority over the will. So the will delights in the, the knowledge of God that it has in the beatific vision. But the essence of happiness is in the act of the intellect, understanding, and the delight that results from that pertains to the will. That's his, that's his theory. And I want to talk about that in about five minutes. So we're, we're headed there.
And if, and if you feel like I'm not addressing it clearly enough, please raise your hand again and say, reminder. Um, so, but this is a key question about, uh, above all, I think about the um, natural ends, supernatural ends, um, and the way our natural virtues and supernatural work, virtues work together to get us towards happiness. Let's just take a quick run through um, the rest of the articles just to like get on the table what Aquinas has said, and then I'm then I'm going to like try to step back and uh, sum it up. So we could skip ahead to question three, article eight. Happiness consists in the vision of the divine essence, and it's the same argument we've seen him make already. One isn't perfectly happy as long as there's something remaining to desire or to seek. And here he makes an argument about knowledge, especially wanting to know the cause. So once you know that there's a cause, your mind like wants to get to the bottom of it. I can tell you after jury duty where the evidence presented was uh, had a lot of gaps in the story. It was clear that there was a whole story here and the jury just you know, the admissible evidence just didn't fill in all the gaps. So you're left saying, okay, I understand they found a guy in an apartment with a gun and they're claiming the gun was his. Why was he in the apartment? Well, you know, we didn't know. So this, the mind wants to know, like, why? Why was he there? I don't want to get off and talking about jury service. It's just to say, like, everyone's mind wants to get to the bottom of the cause of something. So this is Aquinas' analysis, his exact analysis in question three, article eight. The intellect is going to continue to like spin in trying to get some traction on the question until it gets to the essence of the cause and the essence of the, the first cause, the ultimate cause. So he says, we won't rest in knowing only that God exists if we don't know the essence of the first cause, which is why, he concludes, perfect happiness requires that we know God as he is in himself, which is through the vision of the divine essence. Okay, very interesting argument, and one that has caused enormous controversy, because there are some distinctions here that Aquinas draws later that he doesn't bring in here. And so that leads some people to say, oh, Aquinas is contradicting himself. Or this is the master text, and these other texts have to be made relative to it. These are big questions in the domain of nature and grace, which has been a major debate, certainly in the 20th, you know, starting in the early part of the 20th century, extending even to today, uh, but also going back some centuries, there have been Catholic debates over the relationship between nature and grace, and this is, this is one of the core questions. Um, so uh, I'll have more to say about that in a minute, but I would just note that in just in uh, two more questions, question five, article five, Aquinas says very explicitly, you need grace to get to the beatific vision. So I think it, it's fair to say that he's presupposing in this article that you also need grace to get there. That raises questions about natural happiness and whether we do have a natural desire to, for the beatific vision or whether this is a supernatural desire. 
Okay, I'm going to say more about that in just a minute. Let's just quickly finish our tour. Question four, article two. Uh, this is about an interesting difference between Aristotle and Aquinas. Aquinas thinks vision is the operation itself where you possess the perfect good. Well, delight is the repose of the will in possessing the good. So Aristotle seems to have been unsure about that. Um, article four, the will needs to be upright for happiness. You need an upright will before you get to the beatific vision because that's what orders you to God, disposes you to the beatific vision. And once you see God, your will is going to be set on loving him. In fact, Aquinas thinks you won't be able to do anything but that. You won't be able to fall away from God once you see him as he is. Do you need a body to be happy? Do you need a perfect body to be happy? This sounds like a very contemporary question. You know, my body isn't perfect, therefore I'm not happy. How could it be more perfect? I'll let you, you know, judge how my body could be more perfect. I certainly am aware of bodily imperfections. Um, my, you know, my wardrobe is also aware of those bodily imperfections. It's like, these pants keep shrinking. Um, so, okay. Do you need a perfect body to be happy? Um, Aquinas says, well, you need at least a well-disposed body. Otherwise, you're going to suffer, right? But in the next life, he thinks what's really, what really matters is your soul and your body, which eventually will be re reunited to your soul or brought back into existence. Your body may receive some overflow. It will receive overflow from the joy of your soul. But he doesn't think that that's the essence of, uh, of happiness, is the bodily overflow. That's like a nice supplement. And what's very interesting is the way he discusses the spiritual body here. St. Paul's um, references to not having a, an animal body, but a spiritual body. Um, that's kind of mysterious and wonderful to consider. What is the resurrected body really like? We don't have much information about that, actually. Um, do you need external goods? Question for Article 7. Aquinas says, well, in this life, yes, but not in heaven. This might stand contrary to Islam, by the way, that thinks that paradise is basically a place of bodily delights and with exterior pleasures and not the vision of God. That's what Islam explicitly excludes as a possibility because of God's transcendence. We claim that's a blasphemous idea to say that we could have friendship with God or the vision of God. So paradise is just a place of exterior goods and bodily pleasures. It helps see, I mean, helps us bring out how different, radically different, the Christian proposal is. Because the Christian proposal, you know, it's, it's not clear, just looking at those two things, that Islam is aiming at the same thing that Christianity is aiming at. At least not in terms of an all-encompassing end. You could say they're both aiming at fulfilling God's will, perhaps. But friendship with God, that's pretty important for Christianity. 
charity. That's the essence of it. And that's what Islam sort of says is not really possible. At least not, not a, an intimate communion with God. So Islam says basically you have to be content with just saying it's just going to be a, a, a creaturely paradise. I think Aquinas would ask philosophical questions about whether you would really be happy there. Question 4, Article 8. Do you need friends in heaven? That's a very interesting question. Aquinas gives a controversial answer that many people are unsatisfied with. He says, in this life, you need friends. But in the next life, you only need one friend, and that's God. If you have God as your friend, you don't need any other friends. Now, does he think that we won't have any other friends in heaven? No. He thinks that there is a communion of saints, and we will enjoy that communion. So he's really just asking, like, is it necessary to have friends, to be happy in heaven? And he says, God by himself is perfectly happy. He doesn't need us. And if God created only one creature, suppose God created only you, would you have perfect happiness if you were with God? And his answer is, yes, you would have perfect happiness. So that perfect happiness doesn't depend on other people uh, horizontally sharing it with you, you might say. But I, th- I don't think Aquinas would, would at all suggest that we won't have that or that that won't be part of the riches of heaven. I think it's a little bit like the overflow into the body that we get in the resurrected body. There's a kind of fittingness of, of this fellowship in heaven. And he talks about that in many places. He has a beautiful sermon on on the Feast of All Saints. Uh, but it's not strictly the essence of our happiness. And that raises lots of difficult questions. Um, one would be like my dog, Sally. Sally was my dog, you know, in kindergarten. Uh, Sally was a boy, by the way. Um, <laughs> I just thought that Sally was, sounded like a good dog's name. And I insisted on naming the dog Sally, and my parents. Let me do it. Um, so Sally, and I, I always had to explain when I would say, oh, my dog, his name is Sally. And they, oh, she's a, such a nice dog. Said, oh, it's a he. Always confused people. Sally was hit by a car. I was deeply saddened. Came home from kindergarten. Sally was no more. Um, can I be happy in heaven without Sally? Uh, there's a Dominican priest um, here at the Dominican House of Studies who uh, was staying in someone's condo in Florida. And um, the condos are, you know, like row houses, basically. And he would go out and sit on the front deck every morning and read a book. And there was a woman who would walk her dog every day down, you know, and, and chat with people as she's going. Little, small poodle or something like that. And uh, there's a lagoon on the other side of the street. So that you're like looking over the lagoon. So one day he's out there reading his book and she's, you know, seven or eight houses down. And lets the dog off the leash, and the dog comes down and is playing in front of the porch where he's seated. And um, he watches the dog go down next to the lagoon. Alligator grabs the dog, pulls it in. Okay. So five minutes later, she's walking along saying, Fifi, Fifi, and says to him, Have you seen Fifi? And he said, Yes. She said, Where is Fifi? And he said, Fifi has gone to doggy heaven. I, I don't think, the way he told the story, I don't think that was really an option. 
Um, he was on the porch. The dog was running down the street. Um, so she, of course, was, you know, he explained alligator, etc. She's crying. It's a difficult moment. She, you know, she leaves. Okay. Next day, she comes and knocks on the door. And she says, you're a Catholic priest, aren't you? I said, yes. Did you mean what you said when you said Fifi was in doggy heaven? And he said, no. <laughs> he actually, he, he said that they then had a good, a very good pastoral conversation about how she can deal with the loss. And like, where is Fifi now? And he said, Fifi just isn't anymore. Fifi does not have a, a subsistent soul that continues after death. We have subsistent souls because we have the power of reason. So we have, we have something that transcends the animal in us. We are animals with something that transcends the animal. Okay, so that's, that's Aquinas' argument for the immortality of the human soul. But that's why he thinks animals have souls, but they aren't immortal souls. Um, Father John Corbett, who also is a professor here, um, has also added to this argument about animals going to heaven. If your cat can go to heaven, your cat can also go to hell. And where do you think your cat will go? <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't think he's a cat lover. Um, okay, so the, the point is, like, you won't need Fifi to be happy in heaven. And that is challenging because we can become very attached to the dog that we love, for example, or the cat that we love. But it does also pose a question to us, like, why are we loving the dog? And this is a question that maybe Augustine also would address if we, if we were to talk about, did you talk about the passage where he, he weeps in sorrow over the death of his friend and concludes that he's loving himself more than his friend? Why is he so sad? Because he has lost someone who makes him feel good. So I think that's a good question for us to ask ourselves in, in some of these questions about grief. And do we really understand how good God is? I think Aquinas is austere on that point. Um, but he might be right. Okay. Um, question five on the attainment of happiness. Here we're back at the Imago Dei. We started in question one with the Imago Dei. Aquinas ends this section of the Summa on the Imago Dei. So in a certain way, we've gone from Imago, question one. Two, the kinds of goods that might be candidates for happiness in question two. Two, question three, the attitude is vision of the divine essence. And then we're going back down and saying, what's necessary in question four for that happiness? Do you need external goods? No. Do you need goods of the body? No. Do you need goods of the soul? Well, it's an act of soul in one sense. And now, question five, we're back down at the Imago. So, Aquinas, perhaps in good Augustinian fashion, is using a chiastic structure here for a little inclusio in this section of the Summa. And it, the high point is God, and the beginning and end points are the Imago Dei. The Imago as, like, starting to act, and then the Imago as attaining its end. Okay, so question five on the attainment of happiness. He starts in Article 1. Human beings can get to happiness 
because we have intellect and will. So we're kapax dei, capable of God. And that's beautiful. We're capable. Now, what does that mean? And this is where we come back to the question that I postponed a minute ago. And the question that we raised in question three, article eight, about the mind wanting to know what God is. In what sense are we capable of God? Classically, Thomists, I mean, I think Aquinas very clearly says this, but he doesn't like maybe lay it out with super clear uh, terminology. Later, Thomists come along and draw that terminology out more clearly, but I think this is very clearly Aquinas' own teaching. He says, we're kapox in two ways. So we're capable, in one sense, of attaining the ends that are proportioned to our nature. In that sense, we're capable of a kind of imperfect happiness. But it's an imperfect happiness that's going to be bounded by what our nature can achieve. And that really means what we can do in this life. So Aquinas thinks there is a real but imperfect sense of happiness there. We can have a family. We can make friends. We can uh, grow crops. We can build a whole Silicon Valley industry that produces iPhone 14. Um, the culminating apex of which is the cat video on the internet that keeps people happy, right? Um, Grumpy Cat may be the apex of our technology. Um, but in any case, uh, you know, that's only a relative happiness. So Aquinas thinks that naturally speaking, we can have a kind of relative happiness, but it's always going to be relative and imperfect. We're capable in another sense, and that is kapax dei in the full sense of that word. But there we're talking about capable of knowing God as he knows himself, loving him as he loves himself, knowing and loving him in the vision of God in heaven, and in the supernatural life of grace, even here in this world. But that is only possible when God elevates us to that life by grace. So grace raises up a nature that has a kind of openness upwards towards this, but doesn't itself have the active power to get there. And this goes by the classic name in the Thomist terminology of obediential potency. So this is to say that the human nature has an obediential potency. It's a passive potency. It's a kind of openness upwards towards knowing and loving God, which the nature itself cannot activate. But we're the kind of creatures that God can raise up to that, to that life so that we begin to know and love God as he is in himself. So to go back to the question that, uh, that we had before about virtues, Aquinas distinguishes between natural virtues and supernatural virtues. Now, we can acquire some things that otherwise might be called natural virtues by supernatural infusion, so the, the picture is a little complicated in Aquinas, and there's a lot of debates in contemporary philosophy and theology about that too which I won't go into unless you want to ask about it. But uh, basically, you can acquire some things through habitual action, 
you can acquire justice, you can acquire prudence, you can acquire temperance, uh, courage. Um, God can also infuse those into you uh, supernaturally, but their end remains proportioned to your nature. And so they will lead you to a kind of relative happiness. God can also raise you up to a higher kind of life, and that is the supernatural life of grace, which he says gives you a sharing in the divine nature. So it's a, it's a sharing in a higher nature. And those supernatural virtues, the supreme uh, supernatural virtues, are the three theological virtues, faith, hope, and love. These actually give you the capacity to know and love God imperfectly in this world, and then they reach their completion in the beatific vision, where faith gives way to vision, hope gives way to possession, and love is now perfect. So this picture of the human creature open upward, but needing God's grace to activate it, is actually the part of Aquinas' moral, moral account of human life. Let me just add a... Um, I think I, I want to say three things, then I'm going to conclude. There are three like big topics which could probably be talks in themselves. Uh, point number one, uh, the fall. The fall makes this picture very complicated because it means that we start off in the hole. We start off addicted to bodily things. And so even reaching our natural ends becomes very difficult for us after the fall. And Aquinas has a whole account of that. So, in fact, he thinks that after the fall, we need God's grace just to do our natural good. And that also is a very Augustinian point. But he also thinks that that grace is healing our nature and elevating it. So if we hadn't fallen, supernatural grace would just elevate us. Because of the fall, it has to heal us and elevate us. Okay, that's the first point. Second point, what about that question? about desiring to know the cause. Do we have a natural desire as rational creatures to know what God is? Or to know, like, to be friends with God really is, is uh, I think, maybe even a better way of putting it. Now here, the, the first text that we read from Aquinas in question three, article eight, is ambiguous or might suggest that we have a natural desire. But then in question five, Aquinas makes clear you can only get there by grace. And then later in the Summa, I think he makes very clear this idea that our nature is never really oriented towards that supernatural good uh, actively, only passively, and it's awaiting God's gift to activate it. So do we have a natural desire for the beatific vision? And some in the 20th century have argued, very, this is a huge debate in Catholic theology in the 20th century. You have on the one side, uh, Henri de Lubac, who uh, the famous Jesuit, 20th century Jesuit, who argues, yes, we have a natural desire for the beatific vision. Then you have on the other side, uh, really, uh, there's a number of figures, but Reginald Garrigou Lagrange would be a, a major one who's arguing against Lubac. He's the Dominican teaching at the Angelicum who says, uh, no, if you make that mistake, you're confusing the order of nature and grace. Why is Garrigou worried about this? Because he says, if you have 
a natural desire. This is a desire not instigated by grace, but a a desire that's just natural to every human being. You have a natural desire for the beatific vision, then it would be absurd for God to not give you the beatific vision as something naturally achievable. So God would create an absurd creature if he made a creature naturally be oriented towards an end that it could never get to. God wouldn't do that. In every other domain, we see that if God gives a creature a natural desire, God also gives the creature the natural capacity to reach the end. So if you take the Delubach position, Garagu says, you are going to destroy the gratuity of supernatural grace. You're going to make it, you're going to make it owed to the creature effectively. Or you will say that every person who isn't achieving that supernatural end is not doing something that's even naturally good. Okay. Um, how does Aquinas uh, speak about it? Or, or what, let me, let me give my, my sense of like trying to understand this natural desire, supernatural um, end uh, sort of question. I'd like to use an analogy. And uh, it's a sci-fi analogy. So I don't know how many of you are fans of space or things like that. I, I'm fascinated by the you know, space program, the moon landings. Uh, really interesting. Okay. So suppose someone were to come and say, hey, Father Dominic, would you like to take a space flight to the center of the sun? I would be like, uh, that's, that's a really cool idea. If that were possible for me, I would do it. Now, is that possible for me? Well, first of all, no one's going to let me be an astronaut at my age. Okay. Um, but second of all, like we know, there's no spacecraft that can fly to the center of the sun. And certainly no spacecraft that a human being could inhabit that would keep you alive by the time you reach there. And there's lots of reasons for that. The radiation is too intense. The heat is too intense. The pressure would be too intense. You'd be killed long before you ever got there. So it's like a, a crazy idea. And in what sense then? Could you desire to do it? Well, you could only desire it in kind of like a sci-fi novel kind of way, where you're like, well, if somehow in some sci-fi universe I were able to do it, I guess I would do it. But I don't live in that universe, right? So we don't actually see anyone building his or her life around the project of flying to the center of the sun. It's just not a real desire even though you might say, yeah, if it were possible, I would do it. Aquinas' claim is that the vision of God's essence is like going to the center of the sun while remaining alive. And in fact, I think he would say it's much, much more implausible than that. So we can only, I think, on Aquinas' view, begin to think that the vision of God's essence is you know, naturally desirable by us, if we don't appreciate just how radically high God is compared to us. So 
that suggests that like without grace if god had never revealed to us the christian religion we would never or or the old testament you know the jewish faith we would never imagine that we could be in that kind of relationship with god and so although you might say well if it were possible would you like to do it and you might say well yeah sure you know i'd do it if it was possible no one would really try to do that. And Aristotle certainly didn't think that you would build your life around that kind of relationship. Okay, so that's uh, that's maybe where I should stop. I had one more thing that I was going to say, but I'll save it for another time. I think we've, we've managed to make our way more or less through um, the questions on happiness. And uh, I'll thank you for your intention and invite any, any further questions. If I recall correctly, I know it's in the metaphysics, I can't remember if it's the first line or not. Metaphysics by Aristotle, he says, all men by nature are to know. I believe Aquinas agrees with this. And I, I, I think a large force of what you're saying is to the effect of um, the more you know, or at least the more you know God, and the things of God, the, the happier you'll be and the virtuous. I, I think what I'm about to say, I, I don't think it would actually contradict Aquinas on the metaphysical level, but... I'm a bit skeptical on, on a more practical existential level because I, I've noticed even in my own life the the more I know and the more I seek to know, the, the worse a person I become. I, I spent the past four years of my life trying to get into an Ivy League school. The only way I could do this was by stuffing my nose with books from Plato, Aristotle, Heidegger, and everything in between. But the more I stuffed my nose in books, the less time I was spending with friends, the more I would neglect my family, the more I would neglect the poor, the needy, etc. And I knew a lot, and I, I eventually succeeded in my goal, but effectively at the expense of my soul. And when I think of virtuous people, I, I tend to think of people like my grandparents. They're not very smart. Like they're really not smart. Uh, but, and I might say they're wise, but they, they, can, they would not know what an Aquinas is. And then, you know, I'm, I'm worried that the, the intellectual life or the contemplative life that could be proposed by Aquinas, although he may not mean this, may actually, I suppose, neglect the, the, the practical consequences of seeking to know more and the effect that it has on our own virtual happiness. Yeah, that's, that's a good question because uh, I think it's important to say you don't have to be, you know, you don't have to have a PhD to engage in the contemplative life. And having a PhD might actually impair you from it if you don't go about it the right way. So what's really necessary is that you, not that you know, we could maybe say much more about this, not that you know things about God, but that you know God. So you could, you could compare like, um, I don't know, give me, give me the name of some famous movie star couple. Okay, Brad Pitt, Angelina Jolie. You know, so um, Angelina Jolie could know an awful lot. Uh, I mean, suppose someone here says, I'm Brad Pitt's number one fan, right? You know, I know everything about Brad Pitt. Uh, I know where he grew up, where he went to school, what his favorite color was in third grade. I know what his favorite lunch was in high school. I know what his homeroom teacher was his freshman year. Like all these things, right? I know everything there is to know about Brad Pitt. 
And then you could say to Angelina Jolie, maybe this is not the best example because maybe she doesn't, you know. Okay, but Angelina, let's suppose Angelina Jolie, you know, is like a uh, a great spouse to Brad Pitt, which I think is probably not the case. But um, does she know all of those things? Does she know like what his favorite color was in third grade? Maybe not. But she knows him. And the number one fan doesn't. And Angelina Jolie knows him in a different way and knows him in a deeper way, a way that that has produced a relationship and a mutual love between them. And also, by the way, like if the number one fan shows up at Brad's pit and tries to go into the kitchen, like that person is going to get arrested for stalking. Right. You know, like, like that's weird. Um, so knowledge about a person doesn't equal knowing the person. And I think in the end, what Aquinas is after is knowing the person. Uh, so knowing God, not just as an object of academic analysis, but knowing God as he reveals himself to us. And that requires faith. So, and faith creates a personal relationship with God, a relationship of friendship insofar as it erupts into love. So that's that's really what we're after, and that's what the contemplative life is about, I think, for Aquinas. Yeah. It looks like we have this amazing case where somebody was really smart and loved God both, which is kind of a cool thought. But he's not a saint because he's so smart. Yeah, that's right. Thank you. So uh, in the 20th century, there was uh, monks like Morgus, the new natural lawyers, theologians, did a pushback on the scientific vision as fully satisfying the the soul uh, that you, it still doesn't require perfect happiness and one I know there's been many arguments employed for it but one such argument that I'm interested to hear kind of what the, the submissive response would be to this uh, is that even when the soul uh, isn't is experiencing the beatific vision there's still a, a desire um, and hope for the resurrection of the body um, even while it's united to the beatific vision so how like does the Thomas reconcile the the, the soul being fully, all its desires being fully satisfied in the vision with this longing for the resurrection of the body? Yeah, um, that's a good question. Let me just say something about the new natural law theory and where Thomas would critique it or traditional Thomas uh, would critique it um, on, on, in relation to this. So there's many different uh, critiques, and we could ask Dr. Hittinger to amplify them for us um, since he's a, a great expert on this and I am not. But um, one of the things that they claim in their theory, the new natural law lawyers, uh, is that there are certain basic goods which are irreducibly multiple, which are self-evident. So there's no metaphysical grounding for them. The whole question about being is convertible with goodness, like being profession goodness, that's precisely what they reject as insufficiently grounded. So they, they would refuse to start morals from that starting point, which is why I wanted to start there. Because I think once you do that, you are in a very different world, very different thought world. So you can make your system come up with a lot of the same answers as Aquinas and look like Aquinas in certain ways, but fundamentally, that's a very different thought world. Um, I'm not saying that it, it doesn't have its strengths or it couldn't be respectable. It's just, it's not, certainly not Aquinas' view. Um, okay. so. They reject that. They say that there's an irreducible number of, of these basic goods 
which are all required for happiness. This starts to look like the basket of goods theory. So then you have the traditional Catholic teaching, and the new natural lawyers are, um, I think almost all are, you know, nearly all, trying to be very orthodox practicing Catholics. You have the Catholic dogma that we're ordained to the beatific vision, which is fully sufficient. And then people come back to them and are, they're like, hey guys, see this thing about the beatific vision? This doesn't fit your theory. And so then they, they are trying to come up with justifications for why, well, you'll have these other basic goods in heaven and we can, like, we, can, we can work that out. But I think in the end, this is a deep tension for their thought, is that they don't uh, have a way of connecting that one final end, uh, which is all sufficient, and reconciling that with all those other basic goods. So, for example, a basic good would be marriage and family life. Okay, Jesus says in heaven they're neither, you know, they neither give nor are given in marriage. You don't need friends to be happy in heaven and so forth. So um, those create problems. And I'm not saying that they don't have answers to those problems. It's just that I think that they're, they've created a system which is trying to pay homage to some certain philosophical problems that they have perceived, like the critique of moving from an ought to an it or from an is to an ought. Uh, they're trying to avoid that problem. And they've created this, this big explanation for it. But I'm not sure in the end that it's fully satisfactory. Have I answered your question? Not really. Um, you asked. Yeah, I guess just in relation towards like, I guess the, res the resurrection of the body. Uh, is that like, is I guess in what sense is that desire for like the soul that is like completely satisfied the beatific vision unfulfilled, or is there still this like restlessness in the beatific vision for the its reunification of the body? Yeah. Uh, so this is this is a good question, and I think this is something you know where. People sometimes are dissatisfied with Aquinas' account on things like this, like the body seems extraneous, uh, you know, once you've got the beatific vision as its separated soul. But I think if you try to probe Aquinas and like dig into his thought and try and think it through from his perspective, you know, what is a separated soul? It's the soul of a body. And he claims that's what makes us individual, actually in heaven, is that I will have the soul of this body, you'll have the soul of that body. Otherwise, we're essentially, or, you know, we're the same in species, the same essence. So th the distinction between us has to, in a way, be tied to our, to our bodies, even though our bodies don't exist anymore. So a soul is, um, and the, the body, in a way, isn't a, a separate thing. The body is made the body by the soul. So it's not like you have a soul, which is a coherent thing, and then you have a body, and then you put them back together. Uh, the, the soul is the form and principle of actuality of the body. But an important part, the body has died and isn't there anymore. The soul has not died. So the soul is, is still there, but it's not doing its job, uh, and its job is to inform a body on the natural level. So in that sense, the soul is longing to get its body back. But in terms of the upward gaze on the divine essence, the soul is completely happy with that. So the soul on the natural level wants its body back, wants there, you know, it's like that's because of what it is. 
But in terms of the spiritual desire, it's fully complete. That's, I think, my best shot at answering that question. Let's thank Father Dominic for his Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org slash donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.